Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. How does a traditional bricks and mortar retailer transform itself into an omnichannel business with strong digital and data science capabilities? In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we learn from Bunnings General Manager of Data and Analytics, Genevieve Elliott, how the company is transforming its operations using data and analytics. As Australia and New Zealand's largest retailer of home improvement products, Bunnings is a highly complex organization with a large physical footprint, a wide product range, and an elaborate supply chain. Bunnings is almost 130 years old and has undergone tremendous growth over the last three decades. The company's well-known strategy of lowest price, widest range, and best customer experience is increasingly being driven by the company's growing data and analytics capability. In this episode, we discuss Genevieve's career journey and how she ended up in data and analytics, how Bunnings uses data to create operational efficiencies, improve customer experience, and optimize pricing, how the team prioritizes projects and engages with the organization, how the team is driving a data-driven culture through the company, Genevieve's advice to other analytics leaders wanting to drive strategically important results for their organization, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Jen. Genevieve Elliott, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is so good to have you on the show today. And I have been waiting for this opportunity for a while because I've been following Bunnings for a few years, both as a customer, but also as an analytics tragic, because I know you guys have been brewing on some really cool projects. So we're going to hear all about that today. But before we get into that, let's learn a bit about you. So could you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your career background and what you do? Sure. Firstly, thanks for having me. Also, thanks for being a customer. That's pretty exciting because you actually then know, I guess, the product that Bunnings offers. So a bit about myself. I started my career after doing a double degree at uni because I couldn't actually ever work out what I wanted to be. But I started as an auditor at KPMG and I became a chartered accountant. I guess whilst I didn't appreciate it at the time, the few years that I spent as an auditor have been exceptionally valuable to me for my career post-auditing, I think. As an auditor, you need to understand business process, workflows, controls. This is what you 
assess. And actually understanding how the connective tissue of an organisation comes together has been has really stood me in good in good stead. But so I, you know, I spent some time in audit. I moved to advisory and specialised in managed funds and superannuation. This took me to Sydney and then to London. And, you know, I guess in roles, I started working in project management when I was in London, actually then jumped from being a consultant into financial services at a bank and sort of took on strategy and planning roles, created a function I called sales infrastructure. So that was sort of supporting everything a salesperson needed to do their job really well, but that they didn't really want to do themselves. So CRMs, training, et cetera. After about 10 years in London, we moved back to to Melbourne, spent some more time in financial services, and then I moved to the property sector. And that was probably the one role I've ever actually planned. I I decided I wanted to work in a listed organisation that was headquartered in Melbourne. And within that business, was given the opportunity to work in, in data and analytics. Yeah, great. In terms of what I do now, I guess the way I'd capture it would be I'm sort of responsible for delivering Bunnings data strategy. So essentially how we unlock value from the application of data and analytics across the business. So that is a very, very career journey indeed. And you said that your one planned role was actually the one in in Melbourne in, in property and in analytics. How did that come about? How did you plan to get to that and why? I think if I reflect on my career, for for many years, I was actually quite concerned that I didn't have depth in any field or industry because I've sort of moved in different roles and different sectors. And the moving around was primarily driven by opportunity. If someone offers me a role that sounds interesting, I'll probably take it. And I, I didn't know if that was really actually standing me in good stead. So when I sat down and said, okay, well, what are the things I'm interested in Partly it was, I had a young family and working sort of New York, London and Luxembourg hours was pretty challenging from Australia. So I wanted something that was headquartered in Melbourne. But I, and so I took a role, property company, it was actually a financial planning or, you know, uh, planning and uh, analysis role. And uh, sort of within about 12 months of taking that role, I was offered the GM of marketing role. And then the business went through a merger. And at the time, the CEO was convinced that data was going to be a thing and was sort of really keen for me to take on this role of data and analytics, which is essentially, it was a, it was a greenfield opportunity. There was, there was no capability in the business or very limited. And it was an opportunity to sort of build something from scratch within, you know, a very sort of mature, you know, business, you know, property has been around a long time and operates very thoughtfully, strategically, but based on previous methodologies, I'd say. Yeah. So that is, a very, very experienced, like we've already talked about, but when you put more detail into it, you can really hear that you've actually gone from being a chartered accountant to being an investment manager or funds manager to also being a marketing leader, which is sort of almost the other side of the spectrum, right? Or you, I feel like you're using different parts of your brain for those, those different uh, things at least. And then analytics. And how do you think this experience has helped you in your current role? So I think maybe if I like the, the focus, I guess where I concluded in terms of thematics is I can, I'm happy to help create something within sort of a mature business, which does actually require similar sort of change management disciplines as you try and work through to convince people that, that you've got something valuable to offer. But I think if you take all that experience, what you see in different organisations and in different roles it's actually similar patterns of behaviours. You know, they might do different things, but revenue generators typically behave in a certain way. 
you know, operational teams usually behave in certain ways you, and you get to understand the different drivers or levers that they're trying to pull. You understand the results that they're trying to generate. So it's actually quite useful to actually have spent time in different organisations so that you actually recognise those patterns. So when you walk in, even if you don't know the industry, you actually see the patterns fairly quickly. And I think just generally data is probably data analytics is probably a sweet spot for me because it pulls sort of the analysis that I loved in my finance roles with the science of the marketing piece and actually brings it together to actually then drive business outcomes I think so it's been a long route to, to get here but but I think that all of that experience does actually add value to my current role. I'm happy for you that you finally found your true passion and the right <laughs> place the best thing to work on in life yep. which is data analytics of course. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Now, Jen, let's get into how you use data to drive Bonnings the business. So you've been with Bonnings, uh, if my memory serves me right, since August 2020, and you look after the data analytics function there, which encompasses data engineering, BI, and also advanced analytics. And that's not a long time because Bonnings is actually much older than that. I counted about 130 years old or close to that. It's been some very different businesses throughout those 130 years. And before we get into the specifics of data analytics, could you tell us a little bit about what Bunnings is, who Bunnings is, and where you are today? Also for our or international listeners who, who might not have the same exposure as Australians to the brand. Yeah, no, no, no problem. So you're right, it does have a, a long and storied history. Bunnings you know, it started in sort of 1886 when Arthur and Robert Bunning you know, arrived in WA and set up a sawmill. And over time, they took the business public and it became sort of a leading supplier of hardwood. But in 1994, it was acquired by Wares Farmers. And, and today, I'd sort of characterise Bunnings as, you know, Australia New Zealand's leading retailer of home improvement and lifestyle products, as well as being a major supplier to project builders and commercial tradespeople, the housing industry. And it looks like a Lowe's, a Home Depot, you know, for, for you know, North American listeners or, or like a B&Q or a home base for UK listeners, if there's any. So, and sort of we have about 375 location stores. We've got large warehouses, small format stores, trade centres, some frame and trust sites. We've acquired businesses in the sort of trade tools perspective perspective, Adelaide Tools, Beaumont Tiles um, acquired. So it's sort of a, it's a business that started off as a sawmill and has sort of really grown to re- to, to service that customer need for home improvement lifestyle. And we've got about 55,000 team members. Yeah. So it's a very big business. And for those of you who haven't been inside of Bunnings, it's not a place where you let your kids go because you might not see them for a day or two. They're very big operations with everything you could ever want to buy for home improvement. Yeah. So, Jen, Bunnings has a well-known strategy based on the three pillars of low price, widest range, and best customer experience. As I read your strategy online, increasingly these three pillars are going to be optimized using data and analytics. Could you tell us about how you see that happening in practice? Yeah, sure. So I think if I start with best experience, one of the biggest changes that we've seen in the last three to four years has been our acceleration of our digital capability. So it feels very recent, uh, you know, introduced an e-commerce capability through our website. 
launched Power Pass app for our trade customers, launched a product finder app to help people navigate our stores because we know that 70 to 80% of the questions our team members get is, can I, where can I find? And we've actually launched um, a partnership with Flybys, a, a membership or loyalty program in the last little while too. So we've had a real acceleration of our of our digital channels. I think that's important to acknowledge because that then obviously means that they're, they're much more data-rich channels than the sort of traditional visit to a physical Bunnings warehouse. So until recently, the best experience pillar was best service, but that best experience definition now sort of really reflects that growing number of channels that we that we offer and our desire to provide that sort of consistent and great experience to customers across all the channels that, that we offer. So in terms of customer experience, we think about customers in two main segments. We've got our retail or commercial, sorry, retail or consumer customers, and then our commercial or trade customers. And from a data perspective, the opportunity here is really to demonstrate that we know and understand our customers. And, and to do that, we actually need to join up all of the different experiences that they have with us to form that picture of the whole customer. You know, so, so our focus has been in the last sort of 12 to 18 months to really understand those touch points and to then map those into what we've you know, imaginatively called a single view of customer, where we resolve the identity of the customer so that we, you know, regardless of the touch points or, or the um, experiences they're having with us, we can know them, if you like, so that, you know, we're making sure that we understand their preferences to purchase, et cetera. So, you know, from, from I guess the other thing on, on our consumers is that typically they're project focused in their mission, their shopping mission with us. So, and what I mean by that is customers that go to a grocery store typically will buy the same brand of milk, they'll buy the same brand of beans, you know, they'll, they'll buy, they'll be regular shoppers, we'll see them at a certain level of frequency. We don't really see those patterns occurring in consumers at Bunnings. If you're a Bunnings shopper yourself, you're often coming for a project. So it'd be, I'm building a deck, I'm painting my kids' room, um, creating a veggie garden. So that sort of that creates another nice challenge within the data space of how do we, what are the signals that we need to look for that then help us indicate what the, the project is that the customer is trying to accomplish. From a commercial perspective, I think, you know, it is, you know, we do see more regular purchasing patterns and it's actually just about, uh, you know, enhancing the experience through our PowerPass program, making sure that we're providing, you know, the products they need and in the way that they want it delivered if I move to lowest price, because that's the second pillar, and this is a real crit really critical pillar for us. So we've got sort of comprehensive business processes and, and procedures that allow us to do daily checking on prices and you know verify that we are providing the best value to to customers. But I, I think you know the, one of the key use cases that we've got playing in this space at the moment is with our commercial quotes process. So commercial customers can come to us and ask for a quote for a job lot or a project. And, you know, and we'll provide a, a quote back to them. And typically that's been priced by the specialists in our stores based on, you know, their knowledge of the customer and, and their own knowledge of our product range. But what that does mean is we've got, lot, we've got years of that sort of data and it's a really nice and broad data set. So we've started to use that to create a predictive pricing mechanism or rec recommended price for all of the items that a customer is looking to buy. And the trade specialists can choose to use that price or not. But what we're finding is that you know, if the first filter is, you know, is it lowest price? Yes. Um, the next filter is what is the price that we need to offer that will drive stronger conversion? And we're seeing really great take up of this across the business. And I think it's a really sort of nice example of how 
we're supporting decisioning within business functions that embedded sort of analytics, which is really the, the sort of end goal of any analytics team. I guess widest range, we also play a role from an analytics perspective. It's really important to have the right amount of stock in store, not too much, not too little, so that you can really optimise the, the sales that are driven from that. And we do a sort of an optimised min-max forecasting. We have a forecasting product that we provide to the replenishment team. And, you know, it's about 90% of items or SKUs in store that are now going through that process where we sort of input, you know, what the sales have been in previous periods, adjusting for COVID, adjusting for weather, you know, adjusting for stock availability, et cetera. So it's just a sort of a, a nice way of, I guess, another nice example of analytics at work, if you like, within the business. Yeah, great. There are a lot of use cases in that. And yes. uh, some of the things that I picked out was the the difference between what I would probably technically look at as basket analysis in a in a supermarket versus a versus a, a home improvement shop like yours or store that the whole project based thing. So instead of going, uh, if they buy milk, they also buy bread. Uh, it's actually very different, except for when they are tradesmen. It could be more like the basket analysis of the supermarket uh, equivalent. Yeah, so so that's really interesting. The other thing that I picked up on there, Jen, was uh, the way you designed the uh, enablement of frontline staff to price quotes. And because this is one of these traditional uh, challenges that analytics teams have, that they can either completely trump and automate a a person's uh, role by saying, this is now the price, or you can aid. And there's a lot of process design in that. And this is where analytics teams often need to really grow into the space of actually understanding that they're not just algorithm developers, they're also process designers and, and UX designers really, right? And, and uh, you, you're designing a, a process for that frontline staff member. Could you talk us through how you sort of engage with the business to get that right? Because it, it's really all about the uptake with the individual frontline staff in the stores. That's the be-all and end-all. We, we do it in a in a few different ways, but but typically what we'll look for is a is a business sponsor, and this isn't easy. Sometimes finding the right sponsor, finding someone who really understands what is possible, you know, can can take a couple of goes. I, I guess just the other point to call out is as you sort of um, referred to process design and and still keeping decisioning, you know, largely in the hands of people who are customer facing. You know, I think what's really one of the things that always amazes me about Bunnings is its culture and it's got a really strong culture of empowered leadership. And so that opportunity to put decisioning in the hands of people, you know, our team members is actually really key. So so it's not just about being sensitive to a process, it's also being sensitive to culturally how does a business want to work and, and making sure that the data analytics products that we're we're delivering sort of a sensitive and take into consideration that those things. So for, yeah, it's, it's finding the right business sponsorship and really partnering. I was actually talking to one of our key business sponsors yesterday and the way he described one of the pieces of work that we've delivered recently together was beautiful in its simplicity. It didn't go into, we've created a time series forecasting model that does X, Y, Z. It was, we've created this thing that allows our frontline team members to make better decisions. So actually allowing our stakeholders to advocate for the work has also been very critical. 
uh, maybe just the last thing to say is it's often the analytics is actually pretty easy and I'm sure my team won't thank me for for saying that. The challenge really is to drive engagement, to drive endorsement, advocacy, and that just takes a lot of communication and a lot of time with different team members, having them understand what we do, but also making sure we understand what they do and what the drivers of their success look like. It is so hard to get that right, Jen. And the analytics is the easy part for us as analytics professionals in a relative sense. We really need to reflect on our own ability or sometimes inability to just get out of our chair and and go and do that hard work of actually convincing people. It's quite cumbersome and quite tiring, especially if you like to do number stuff typically. So yeah. It is a real skill. And I think it's actually why you referred to earlier sort of the three different parts of my team. I've actually expanded the team to include data governance, which is actually essential and critical, but we've introduced a function or or part of the team called data enablement. Their role is really to take our products and to advise our analytics teams on what is the best way to try and deliver this, what change management do we need to actually consider for the team that we're going to land it in, do we have user guides, have we had training, and then what does that ongoing support look like once it's in production and, and operating? And it's been really hard to actually describe that data enablement function, you know, in terms of because they do so many different things. But um, it's actually been a really critical component for us to drive that business, the business engagement that we need. And and ultimately, at the end of the day, if no one's actually using our data products, we're actually not generating any value. Yeah, exactly right. So, Jen, this is a really interesting point because this is probably the secret sauce, the glue, the sand between the rocks that a lot of analytics teams and businesses are are missing. Can you tell us a bit about this data enablement team? What kinds of skill sets do you have in it? And what is their remit and their, their sort of function day to day? So they've actually, they've served a couple of different purposes. So the, um, it's, it's a really small team. It's two people at the moment, but they leverage our change management capability in the business as well. But their remit is both internal into the team and external out of the team. So internal into the team, how do we best organize ourselves to deliver a product efficiently? So you talk about having a data engineering team, you know, business intelligence team, an analytics team. You've also said there are lots of like people who like numbers often don't don't communicate like in a way between each other that sort of enables some of this work to be done efficiently. So so really we've used the opportunity to understand what the pipeline for work looks like and how do we feed it through our system within the within our team to then produce a product. And then it's really been around externally, what are the products that we're going to be delivering and working with the teams that we're going to deliver it to. So so not just the stakeholder, if you like, but the teams that will be using this products in in action, if you like, and uh, really supporting that team and supporting our team to make sure that our communications are spot on. You know, why are we doing this? How will it help? What's the value? What do you need to do? What will change for you? So fairly sort of hopefully basic in in its desire, but often when you've got specialists creating, you know, predictive models, they're not thinking about what it's going to look like in the hands of people who, who don't think like them. So it's really that you've described perfectly it's that glue it's that it's the connector that we need between our team and the teams who are going to use our products yeah it it is so essential yet so overlooked unfortunately or not overlooked but it's i shouldn't say that actually i think it's it's one of the harder challenges that haven't been tackled yet and let me put it like that because it is it is not technical and it's not two plus two equals 
for. It's not a simple equation. It's, it's a lot of review negotiation using different parts of the brain concurrently yes. and so on, right? So, um, but it's interesting if you ask the team who the most valuable person on the team is, if you like, typically they'll say the, the data enablement resources because they're helping turn sort of like uh, you know, characterize it as a dream. You know, I've got this dream, I'm going to make this product, it's going to help all these decisioning. It's sort of turning it into reality in a way that's like quite comfortable for all parties. Yeah. I'll tell you that I'm working on setting up something similar in my organization and it, it, it is really hard to define exactly what it is, what the remit is, how it's going to link in with the business and how it's going to link in with the team. So I really commend you actually for forgetting that far. I, I think it's it's a very hard well, it's it's sort of pseudo experimental until you until you've set it up really. Yeah. Figuring that out. Yeah. I guess the other thing that they're really focused on, you know, and they've done it organically, you know, if we talk about data literacy or, or fluency, I want people to be fluent in the language of data and analytics. So if we talk about you know fluency, it's been organic through the different teams that we've engaged with, but a more formal fluency program is also within their remit. So based on um, you know a team member's role, what level of education or support or fluency do they need to have in data um, and how are we going to deliver that? And that's sort of a key element of their next 12, 12 months. Yeah, really interesting. So you, you've got this group sort of uh, forging the path for the technical work to then to then follow, basically. And there is a lot for us to learn in that, all, all of us uh, listeners, uh, and not least me, Jen. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> no problem. I, I'm interested in how you select and prioritize the right projects to work on in the organization, because I'm sure you're, you're in hot demand for lots of stuff. Yes, as you'd know, the sort of the um, the pipeline of, of requests coming in often exceed the resources at hand to to deliver. But I think you know we start with a with a top down approach. So, what is the business trying to achieve? You know, across our strategic pillars, and what role can data and analytics play? You know, we're part of the corporate planning process that happens annually, and so we use that as the opportunity to really prioritise our focus. Yeah, on, on top of that, we then have um, analytics business partners that are dedicated to key areas of the business and, and they help us um, develop a joint roadmap for those key areas. So if you think, you know, retailer the key areas would be merchandise and marketing and commercial customer. So we actually have analytics business partners that are embedded in those teams and they work, they, they sort of, again, connect our specialists into those key business stakeholders and, and together they'll create that joint roadmap for the year that is based on their strategic objectives. And I guess the other thing that we use is like sort of the next filter, if you like, will be value and return on investment. There are lots of problems that we can help solve, too many most of the time. And, you know, hiring the right people into data analytics means that you've got really curious people that want to solve any challenge that's thrown their way. But I think it's really important that, you know, within a business, it's expected to drive commercial outcomes that we also hold ourselves to account from a value perspective. And we're really cognizant of the, the, the size of the commercial outcome. It's not worth the effort then, you know, we just make, need to, you know, these precious resources that, that we hire into these spaces really need to be focused on where they can make the biggest, biggest impact. 
And, and I guess that, you know, sort of finally, from a more mechanical perspective, we do have a, you know, a quarterly planning cycle that, again, sort of adjusts priorities for the team. And what we're finding is that, you know, our data platforms and, and, and the engineering team are in massive demand, not just from our analytics team, but, you know, for the different projects that are across the business, because as data becomes more and more important, that sort of connective, that connectivity between different systems means that we'll have a role to play in lots of the, the sort of tech projects or transformation projects we're involved in. So, you know, it's understand business strategy work collaboratively with with the business to to map that out make sure we're focusing on the things that are going to drive the most value or impact and then just make sure you know we're linked into all of the different strategies that are at play across the enterprise so tell us about this corporate quarterly planning for for the organization is that you and all other functions in the business doing that together or how does it play out it's reasonably new. We've done a few quarters of it now. It, it really started off as a combination of the transformation projects that we've been working on and, and the technology teams and you know, making sure that we were aligned around you know, the key projects, but also thinking about you know, the work that has to be done over the, the next quarter that needs to be done by you know, multiple, multiple teams. And so we sort of, you know, we've got tier one, two, and three pieces of work, you know, tier one are the really strategic priorities. Tier two is when more than one team is required to deliver a solution and tier three are those that can actually be done within, within teams. So we find we'll have a range of different projects that we're working on that we're asking the team to work on at any one time, but it is a really nice way of understanding what's important to the business and making sure we're putting resources on those right things. Yeah, and that really is uh, is a gift to you, I think. As an outsider, that's easy for me to say, but some of these planning iterations can seem cumbersome and, and kind of, well, let's just get to the work, but they're actually a gift because they give you the opportunity to focus and to say no to all the stuff that's not on that list, which is really the challenge for a lot of analytics leaders is a lot of our day is, is about saying no to lots of good ideas that just aren't the very best. And that's actually quite hard, both time-wise, emotionally, and yeah, we don't like, like to let people down. <laughs> no, and, and you want to solve the problem and you often can see the answer as well. It is really hard, difficult to hold yourself back, but I guess experience would say where you have embarked on something and you haven't had the right resources or enough of the right resources or you haven't spent enough time looking at the quality of the data that you need to use, typically the you know, the timelines really blow out. There's a whole lot of complexity that you haven't taken into consideration. You often come up with a prototype type thing that, or you know, a minimum viable product that doesn't scale easily. So then you've got a whole lot of other work that you have to do, but you've done enough for it to be used by parts of the business but then it requires a whole lot of manual support as well. So I think I've definitely learned the hard way of um, what happens when you embark on something because you think it's going to be easy and then it turns out to be much more complicated than you thought and then you kind of live with it sort of a tra- trailing along and never quite d- delivering on what you hoped for it to do. So I agree, I'm, I'm really grateful for that, that planning cycle that we have because it does allow us to be really focused in, in what we do. Yeah, so to anyone listening out there, if you don't have a planning cycle, make a note and have a think about how you could create one for your organization, either with everyone or, or in, even within your own team, just to, to help you do that stuff. It's so critical to stay on path. Yeah. Maybe one of the other things, maybe just the other thing to point out there is before going into that, we actually spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, with, that, with our tech team and with our strategy and architecture team, defining what our enterprise architecture 
strategy looks like and where does data play a role in that? So in terms of our you know, overall tech design, that where does the data platform sit and what is its role? And so doing that work up front has been really useful also because it also then prescribes when we do need to get involved in a project and when and when we don't. And actually having that sort of embedded in enterprise architecture principles then means, you, you know, you get included at the right point for the right things. Yeah. So it's about really being being visible in that process and having yes. a strong link. So, so what I'm hearing is that in your organization, you are a strategically important pillar, if I may say that. And that is really important that if, if you're not in that situation, you have to be able to create that. So um, one of the things that come to mind there, Jen, is you have projects that you are or requests uh, or initiatives that you are called upon to do work on or, or deliver. Yes, that's right. But you'll also have your own internal list of things you think you should be doing with that same time that are competing because otherwise we won't get to X, Y, Z, amazing capability in two or three years. How do you prioritize within that realm and how do you sort of help plant the seed of, of some of the things that you need to do to advance your capability in the organization? Uh, it's a really good question. And there's a lot of tension in those dynamics, if you like. It actually comes down to how you describe the value of the work. So if you can say, by doing this work, I think we can save X, or by doing this work, I believe we can drive, let's say, incremental revenue by Y, then that actually then drives the prioritization. So it comes back to how are you thinking about the value of the work and, you know, the the, the you know, sort of matrix, if you like, value versus effort, you know, how quickly do we think we can make this happen really starts to then drive that prioritization. Yeah. And this is, this is also, again, critical for everyone to make sure that you are selling your own wares in. I've managed teams that were so good at delivering on requests, but never took the time to actually care for themselves and build, build data infrastructure and so on. And it just, you're robbing from yourself in the future. You're stealing from yourself in the future if you don't take that time to invest in your own capability yeah and it becomes unsustainable yeah and, and high risk too because it's it's really hard to manage what will typically be a house built on you say house built on sand if you like yeah good analogy so again what advice would you give to other analytics leaders wanting to drive strategically important results for their organization and perhaps for ones that aren't quite there yet, wanting to sort of position their team in the organization? Yeah, it's another really good question. And if we think about traditional mature businesses versus sort of digital natives, digital natives don't have this problem typically. They, They understand the role that data plays. In fact, data is probably central to their proposition. But if you're working in a business that has been successful and hasn't needed a significant investment in, in, in data and analytics, it becomes much more difficult. I think for me, being able to demonstrate value initially is fairly critical. So you need to, like in my experience, you actually need to find pockets of advocates. So people who are really keen to work with the team, keen to see and, and understand the value and give you a go. And you know, that's a really opportunity to, again, collaboratively to create something together. I think once you've done that first thing, 
you know, it starts to give you a seat at the table. And one of the critical things here is making sure that any measurement that you do, like it's really important to measure what you're doing. So that disciplined empirical return that you've measured that drives real confidence that the result is real is also really critical. And you need to think about that before you embark on whatever predictive model you're going to build or, um, you know, whatever you're going to deliver. So thinking about how am I going to describe my result with, with real confidence is actually is important. I think once you've got a couple of those wins, like working from the top down is also then important. So really, you know, if you don't already have, and I think we're very lucky at Bunnings, we have, you know, massive support from our, you know, our, our senior leadership team, um, our executive leadership team. You know, if you don't already have that, that, like that's your opportunity to go and talk about what is possible. And you can't underestimate how many times you have to go and have those conversations. But it's actually being comfortable with those conversations and being able to have them in a way that taps into what's important to those senior stakeholders. So, so again, not talking talking about, you know, the level of error or your accuracy of your models, those sorts of things from the outcome. It's like, I, I think we've got an opportunity to create some efficiency here by doing X, Y, Z, because it's really tapping into what, what are the motivators of those, those, those senior stakeholders. So, but it is difficult to create the space for your team. And for me, it's one of the critical components of my job. My job is actually to go out and create the excitement, create the, the conversations that talk about these opportunities for the role that, you know, analytics can play in our, our business. Yeah, and you're calling on a point there that I had almost ignored as, as if it were taken as a given, uh, but it shouldn't be, which is you have very much support from the top of the organization, right? So the reason I can sit and say I know what Bunning's strategy is at a high level when it comes to data and analytics is because it's made public investor presentations by the CEO. So that 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 means that there is a total focus on it. And that's pretty critical. That should take it to play sort of thing. Yeah. Because one other reflection, and this is probably where maybe some of my finance experience comes into play, is that often if you can talk about what data means in terms of traditional financial measures, you get better cut through than just talking about, you know, I've measured customer satisfaction in a certain way. So if you can say, when I look at sales, I can see that, or when I look at customer satisfaction, I can see a direct correlation between the, that and sales or, or or between an age of a store or, or between some of those key metrics that you know, really have been the focus of one of, you know, a, a mature mature business, it also then starts to open up conversations as well. So sort of anchoring in on what this means to those traditional metrics is a good way to have that, that right engagement. Yeah, so have you seen examples there of perhaps where you've seen it go in one direction and then I suppose when I say one direction, in a direction that where that was lacking and then as soon as you added that, you could move on to better, bigger and better things or you, you get got better cut through? Yeah, certainly not uh, not so much in my current role, but in, definitely in previous roles, you know, linking customer metrics to financial metrics and sort of investment returns was a really critical enabler for sort of expanding the remit of the data analytics team. I couldn't agree more. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com slash AI. Now back to the show. Now, Jen, a big question for you. 
where you have total creativity to answer is so you you look after the, pretty much the whole data pipeline at Bunnings. If you were to design the perfect data-driven organization, what would it look like and why? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. That I'm probably a little bit stumped by, but but if I if I you know I actually think that there's you you need to write the right balance. You know, a totally quant-driven business isn't going to take into consideration, you know, human behaviours and, you know, we know that we don't all behave logically, right? So it's got to be a right balance of, you know, quants, I think, supported by qualitative. You know, if we think about ourselves, right, like we're actually sitting on a huge amount of data. You're sitting on, you know, having, you know I'm sitting on 50 years of data and lived experience, you know, myself. It's just that it's me is experiencing it. So I think it's actually, you know, that sort of what is happening combined with, maybe human interaction around through experience, why this might mean that or, you know, and then what are we going to do as a result? I think there needs to be that right balance. The other thing I reflected on is I would really, really like all data at source to be perfect. Um, (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Which I know is, you know, a pipe dream, but, and particularly again, in businesses that have been run for a long time, you know, when a lot of the processes were being established and systems were being set up, they weren't designed to, you know, support, you know, complex um, analytical uh, models, but but really, you know, and so you end up compensating a lot further down the pipe than you want to. So really that I think, uh, you know, an organisation that's invested significantly in data management and solid processes around measuring the data quality, because ultimately that really drives the value of what you deliver at the other end. I think for data scientists or analysts that are further up the pipe, I'm making a broad brush generalised statement here. So people are totally allowed to disagree, but it's generally undervalued and underestimated in terms of the importance and the rigor that should go into that. In my opinion, a data scientists and an analysts need to lean into the creation of that data a lot more for this for the sake of their own good, their own productivity. Yeah, it makes that it should make their life much easier. You know, they should be able to create products, you know, much more simply without the sort of same level of, you know, constraints that they have to build into the into the product. You know, um, I spend a lot of time um, watching soccer because I've got two boys and they play a lot of soccer. And, you know, I think analytics is a bit like soccer sometimes. So everyone focuses on, you know, the striker, the one who's going to score, you know, the, the one that sort of makes the dreams come true, you know, for, for getting that goal in the net. But what it often fails to realise is that, you know, you've got a goalkeeper and a really solid defence line, because my boys play defence, that have had to keep that ball out, that have had to keep disciplined, patterned ways of working to enable that ball to get up to the striker. And so you can't get those two things out of whack. You know, you actually have to be focusing on your data management to the same extent you are on your data products, because otherwise your data products, you know, performance and, and quality will be diminished over time. I love that analogy. As a soccer tragic and analytics tragic, <laughs> there's so much truth in that. And you can't lose a game if your goalie keeps a clean sheet, basically. So there's something to take away there. Now, Jen, we're almost at the end. I've got two questions left for you. And the first one is uh, I'm going to ask you to pay it forward by telling us who do you think should be the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? So I've been thinking about this. I I don't know her particularly well. In fact, I've only met her at a couple of conferences, but I always love what she talks about. Her name's Elizabeth or Liz Moore. I know her from her Telstra experience, but she's moved recently to the ABC and looks after audience data and insight. And I think she'd have some pretty interesting stories to tell about what she does. Great recommendation. And Liz, don't hold your breath. I'm going to be chasing you. 
very Great. shortly. Yep. And lastly, Jen, where can people find out more about you and connect with you, get a hold of any content you may produce? My profile's on LinkedIn. I have probably am ashamed to admit I don't produce a lot of content. Probably should do some more. But yeah, if anyone wants to reach out, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Genevieve Elliott, thank you so much for being on and Leaders of Analytics today. It's been really, really interesting to learn more about Bunnings and just about how to establish a very mature data and analytics function when it comes to the processes in the team, but also how you engage with the business. So I thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today and I wish you all the best. And I look forward to being really personalized and targeted when I go to Bunnings next time. And I especially look forward to not having to walk aisles and aisles and aisles to find that little one thing that I'm looking for. Product Finder app. That's the answer. Yep. Yep. I've used it once. It did actually help me find that the screw or whatever it was that I was missing. Yep. All right. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.